Welcome to Down the Wormhole. My name is Joshua Weinberg. I'm Zachary Miller. We're joined today by, again, Michael Bertinsky. Thank you very much. And And today is a special day, as we are also joined by our esteemed professor, Mac Haas. Howdy. What do we want to chat about? I can just edit the crap out of this, so <laughs> it's it's really not a big deal. That's the only part that really has to be so, done right. Done. <laughs> I like it. Exactly. So, so everybody, on our first episode, we talked about the accidental nuclear space gun, and we would like to get Professor Haas' opinion on this. Mike, care to take it away? Yes. Yeah, so this is this is a story that I came across while just doing. Uh, research on my own, from my own personal interest, and I'm surprised that this is not, you know, more well known because this is very interesting. So I'll I'll just jump right in and read this. <clears throat> During the 1950s, the U.S. was conducting nuclear tests at the Nevada test site. There was one test that had a very unexpected outcome. As part of Operation Plumbob in August of 1957. A very small yield nuclear device, approximately 500 tons TNT equivalent yield, was placed at the bottom of a 500 foot, 4 foot diameter shaft drilled into the ground. The objective was to investigate ways of containing future, larger underground nuclear tests. The test in question was known as Pascal B. In this test, a concrete plug a few feet thick was placed directly above the device in the shaft and a four inch thick steel plate, again, four feet in diameter, weighing several hundred pounds, was secured over the end of the shaft at the surface. The engineers knew that the plate would be blown off when the device detonated, but they didn't know how fast it would be, so they pointed a high speed camera at the top of the test shaft. Can can I interrupt you? Yes. So, imagine what a high speed camera in the 1950s looked like. Just, just, just oh, venture yes. a thought like big? Well, they can't see what your big <laughs> is. Um, Josh is currently spreading his arms as wide as they go. Right. So imagine, imagine like the largest soccer goalie that has ever lived, spreading <laughs> arms and legs out. At, you know, approximately in an X shape. That's the size of the rotor. Oh you yeah, can get rot- like a half a million frames per second if that thing's spinning really fast. Oh yeah, but it's huge. It's not something that, you know, is basically uh, two iPhones thick uh, that, that we're so fortunate to have these days. Anyway, continue. Oh, we're reaching the best part. When the device was detonated, the plate vanished. The engineers looked everywhere but couldn't find it. Then they looked at the high-speed camera footage. The steel plate appeared in exactly one frame of the footage following the detonation. They therefore could not calculate the exact velocity, but could calculate a lower bound as to how fast the plate was going. The lower bound was calculated to be six times the escape velocity of Earth. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Wow. Yes. Well. (laughs) They realized the blast wave from the explosion couldn't have made this plate fly off at that speed. The blast wave simply wasn't fast enough. What had happened was the concrete plug placed directly above the nuclear device acted much like the propellant in a rifle cartridge. With this new theory, the engineers did some more calculations. 
At the temperatures and pressures achieved by the nuclear explosion, the concrete plug could be assumed to behave like a gas. They therefore applied this equation to find the maximum velocity of the concrete gas. U is equal to 2C divided by gamma minus 1. Where U is the velocity uh, of the gas, C is the speed of sound in the gas, and gamma is a specific heat ratio of the gas. This equation backed up the conclusions from the high-speed camera. But what happened to the plate? Here's a quote from astrophysicist Bob Brownlee, who was part of the test team and from the source. Quote, we never found it. It was gone, end quote. Brownlee says a touch of awe in his voice almost 35 years later. The following October, the Soviet Union launched Sputnik, billed as the first man-made object in Earth orbit. Brownlee has never publicly challenged the Soviet's claim, but he has his doubts. <laughs> what do you think about that? About his doubts? Well, about, about, about that, whole, that whole story. We told, this was the... This was the main showpiece of our first episode where we were still we still had no idea what we were doing. You said that like we changed. know now. What I we're didn't doing. say we know now. <laughs> so I so said is, still. Is the wormhole then the hole left after this <laughs> detonation that was covered by the metal plate? And, and... No, the wormhole is is our tangents. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> I don't know enough about astrophysics to. Uh... To see where it didn't the, get the analogy space. fake. Yeah, right, right. It more or less vaporized I, on impact with the air. I, I agree. <laughs> I, you, know, I, you basically have a reentry vehicle going in the opposite direction. But, correct. Uh, Without a blade of tiling. Right. Well, right. What do you mean? You don't need a blade Or acceleration for that matter. a solid chunk of steel. Yeah, but there it was, was a solid chunk of concrete, and then it wasn't. <laughs> I mean, the concrete gas myself. was what actually was the propellant in the weapon. <laughs> Which is the hilarious part. It, it sublimated the concrete into gas instantaneously to provide acceleration. I mean, as an American, I'm 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 gonna have to side with uh, I'm gonna have to side with the plate on this one. I think it made it to orbit. You think it's still out there? I, of course, I think it's still out there. Was it I think orbit or escape velocity? It just it's. Oh, like, know, it's I guess the you're 50s, right. It's, it's, it's just shot Pluto off. by now, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, of course. I mean, <laughs> may, may Pluto's planetary status rest in peace. Um, well, I mean, I haven't I haven't heard anything back from the angry letters I've been writing to NASA, uh, but I don't I, think anyone's I, reading I think them. The, oh, come on! I mean, it's NASA. How many people? About? How many people are actually there at NASA? Disclaimer: anymore? Some of us in this audience have received support from NASA in the past. Oh really? Oh so really? You have an in. Can you please tell them to read my letters? <laughs> also, also, what did you uh, receive approval from NASA for? Oh, it was it, w- it was a way to consider making jet fuel cocktails computationally. No actual, you know, mixing of chemicals involved. <laughs> well, that's not um, fun. Was this for like the NASA? end of the year ball or something so so you know while nasa is, is probably best known for its space initiatives one of the a's in nasa the first one is is aeronautics and they do research in you know aeronautical engineering and and so um of the many things that that would fall under the umbrella of aerospace uh, one of them is the fuel used for propulsion. And if you want to develop a new 
let's say biofuel or we'll generalize to some alternative fuel well if you if you developed that fuel for a car and it didn't work out you would put your flashers on and pull off to the side of the road and call you know someone to to give you a tow right if you're flying in an airplane there's a bit of a problem right it's called the ground <laughs> and so you know what what we'd like to be able to do is is rate these fuels a priori or or at least consider the whole field of things that could be alternative fuels because they basically have carbon and hydrogen in them and they burn and and focus in on on things uh, in a uh, more directed way so that we're not spending a lot of money trying to figure out if this will work or if this will work or if this will work you know we can come up with with something ahead of time and narrow the field from thousands of candidates to maybe a few dozen or something like that and, and more wisely spend taxpayer money. And you you well, came up, you came up with a fuel design and got approval for it? We came up with, with a a computer code to um, consider the way to make these fuel designs. So what you'd really like is something that looks a whole lot like jet fuel already looks like. Um, and so if you can make up a mixture that has all of the combustion and vaporization and atomization properties as a real jet fuel, but maybe only uses uh, four, three or four, you know, chemicals that you can mix time and time again and get the same thing. Now you can do something that is is somewhere between science and engineering, right? You have this this idea of your your control variables, and that part of the fuel becomes the control variable, and then maybe. Maybe you're adding in biofuel X or, or something like that and trying to figure out if, uh, if that's going to keep your plane in the air. Or maybe most of the time it works, but at really high altitude it begins to, to well, I won't say ice up, but, but freeze in the line or, or create waxes. Or, or right, it, it could just... Right, okay. So, so, or everything checks out except for it's really sooty and that changes the radiative heat transfer inside of your gas turbine, which causes the liner to burn out and your Not so good. No engine fun. To, to, you know, crash and burn. Again, the, the ground, right? Yeah, the ground. <laughs> the, right. Um, the ground tends to hinder airplanes. So Not the fall that kills you. It's the sudden stop at the end. That's, that's As true. always, yeah. <laughs> um, so it's an Occam's razor problem. You'd like things to be as simple Maybe I'm not using Occam's razor exactly the way it was intended, but you know, you'd know, like things to be as simple as they can be without being over simple, right? <laughs> yeah. And, and right. so um, there's, a, there's a fine line and, and, and probably some judgment call or, or expertise that, um, that goes into that. Too, too simple as saying, here's 110 octane, go. <laughs> right. That's, uh, that's, what, that's what small aircraft do. Still use leaded, all right. leaded fuel. They're, they're actually phasing that out. 110 octane low lead. The the FAA research center outside of Atlantic City is actively working mm. on getting the lead out. Um, yeah, it's 100 LL. Yeah, um, my dad has his private pilot's license, and I've I've fueled many a small aircraft. I just couldn't remember what number it was. Well, the um. The story with lead and gasoline is is interesting because, you know, if you look at 
let's say the engineering types that really fueled progress during you know let's say part of the, the 20th century you know before the the computer revolution and, and stuff like that this guy named Thomas Midgley did two things that that basically brought us through the first half of, of the 20th century mm-hmm. he introduced tetraethyl lead into gasoline and he developed freon Ooh. and when you start considering well let's say they're all fluid sciences but <laughs> but that's fine but the ability for for us to live the way that we do now things that we take for granted and for those that don't know what what kind of things is freon in um what was it used for yeah yeah Originally, since it's not really in use much anymore. Right. So, so Freon was was a relatively safe refrigerant. You know, um, hmm. low ability to catch on fire. There are other refrigerants. It turns out they're terribly flammable, <laughs> which is not something that you want to have in every last home, uh, possibly in multiple yeah. places. Um, so, so yeah, when you consider air conditioning, when you consider refrigeration of food when you consider certain industrial processes uh, that's your that's your freon um, and then tetraethyl lead was was improving the compression ratio and um, and therefore the uh, efficiency and performance of, of automobiles you know, these gasoline powered ones so so yeah Midgley he doesn't get the same billing as Henry Ford, but he might have actually enabled more things. Hmm. Interesting. He's certainly part of that that class of, of um, you know, I'd say engineering titans. Yeah. Of of and the the late modern era. We've more or less stopped using Freon because of the uh, environmental. Yeah, I mean the environmental. Yeah. Impacts and what was the main? What do we know? What the main refrigerant is now? It's a one thirty something. Are you thinking R one thirty four A because you worked a bunch of calculations? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's so, the one. So there's there's actually a a quiet revolution in refrigerants going on. I have buddies at NIST. That's the National Institute of of Standards and Technology. Ooh. Okay. Um, which has a few locations around the U.S. They're they're in Boulder, and they are investigating new refrigerants um, for not only the developed world but the developing world that would like to use refrigerants as as a way to move into uh, you know the the quality of life that that we think we have, um, <laughs> and you know can't go back you know because they've their signatories is a montreal protocol or, or something like that and use these things that eat giant holes in the ozone layer or right. it's generally you know, pretty bad and and so um you know kind of actually much like this this jet fuel idea that we were talking about how do you screen from so many, so many different options yeah. how many different molecules can you can you connect together with carbon hydrogen maybe oxygen some halogens or something like that there's i mean it's like it's like playing with some legos or something like that there's a lot of options and the question is if i had to buy them or synthesize them and then measure 
a dozen different properties, you know, uh, latent heat of vaporization, flammability, uh, ozone depletion potential. Da, 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 da. Well, how much of each of those samples would I need? And Someone's now 10,000 samples becomes, you know, a really costly yeah. how, effort how that that is sure to result in 99.9 of those samples being completely discarded. So can you predict this a priori in a way that you can say, of the 10,000 that we started with, we're going to focus in on the, these 45. It would significantly reduce the cost of figuring out what refrigerants would go well, work well. Right, right. Uh. Hmm. All right. So is there a different tangent we could get on? <laughs> That was a, that was an interesting one, I must that say. That was it. Midgley. Probably Thomas, maybe Junior. But that's that's from memory. Eh, good enough. <laughs> We're not trying to be factual here, let's be honest. <laughs> trying to be close enough. I would I would highly dissuade any listeners um, from using us as anything other than entertainment. <laughs> I think that's the goal. Uh, I think I'm gonna. And, I think I'm gonna put even, that statement right at the beginning of the podcast. And even on a right more and even on a more personal level, never believe anything I say ever. We we live with him. Uh, Don't. Yeah. No. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you had also mentioned to us uh, that on a trip to Costa Rica, it was that you uh, traded solar heater advice for staying in. Inn. No, that was that was in Turkey. Oh, um, Turkey! Oh, Turkey! Even better. Yeah, so I was on the Aegean coast. Um, and you see, kind of all over the Mediterranean. Um, certainly, Turkey. There are solar hot water heaters on virtually every building, you know, household, business, whatever it is. And so, I was staying at an inn, and at that point, I knew enough Turkish to to get by. The innkeeper knew enough English that we could actually have a fairly meaningful conversation. I'm curious, do you still know Turkish? Biraz. Um, enough to be dangerous. I guess, I guess not. <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> enough to make a mistake and not realize it? Oh, for sure. No, I mean, I, I probably, you know, achieved at, at my pinnacle, you know, the ability to speak like a, a six-year-old or something like that. Oh, uh, okay. You know. It turns out that's enough to communicate. And when you pick up a language that's not like uh, one that most Westerners go after, Spanish, French, German, you know, Italian, um, it's very much appreciated. And so if you go in and you can speak at a six-year-old's level, that's more than most people. And, you know, what I found just in my experience there was... As, in a sense, an outsider, I could interact with people that would be considered millionaires and, you know, migrant workers. Mm. You know, All right. one hour here, one hour there, or something like that. There was, there was this, this degree of fluidity that you get from being an outsider with, in this case, the insider knowledge of language. Mm. And um, that, that proved to be really profitable. Um, so yeah, I, in this particular case, I was staying at this inn in, um, in Bergama, which is 
the the modern day location of Pergamum, which was known for its library and I think the Greek physician or the Hellenic physician Galen um, was was from that that journal area. In any case, staying in this place and the guy had some problem with the solar hot water heater that I've, I've long since forgotten, but it turns out a lot of the time it's uh, it's about which valves you have opened and closed <laughs> or insulation. <laughs> All um, right. Uh, and so that was a free night stay for whatever nugget of expertise I was able to, to share with him at, at that point. But, you know, we were up on the roof and, and looking at it. Uh, so we got to climb on, on a very... Uh, separate trip uh into a a windmill at you know this is not like don quixote tilting at windmills a modern electric power generating windmill at wow. know, oh. 150 feet up yeah, or whatever say. um and uh how wide how what was the blade length on it, I mean, it it's huge when you when you actually get up there and you get really tired of climbing the ladder. Um, it was, it's a know. ladder, not stairs. Right, right. Yeah. So so you're going up in this tubular uh, metal structure to get up to the top. And well, uh, you don't have a fear of heights. But but you know it was it was an interesting juxtaposition because here we are on this you know well that was probably 1990s technology windmill um, on an island that that was sacked by the historical Achilles. Wow. So 5,000 years ago, you know, <laughs> off in the distance you can see a castle built by crusaders, yeah. and, wow. and down below there are, are chickens and turkeys. Um, and then right there is just this modern... around the, the, the base of the windmills or, or something like that. Wow. And you're just like, this is... So... so Feels it, out of place. Well, it feels out of place, but it's something that, that I would I would call maybe what we need for the energy in game, which is you know as global population continues to grow and you know we continue to be greedy for energy that right now we're basically rating uh, a trust fund laid down by the dinosaurs if if I can be slightly cartoonish or something like that. <laughs> well, I like that. Um, in the energy in game, when we've depleted that trust fund, we are going to need every possible source of, of energy that, that we can harvest in a, in a sustainable manner. And so if it requires us to erect uh, wind turbines in the middle of an island in the Aegean Sea that Achilles sacked 5,000 years mm. prior, why not? That's, that's what we have to do. You know, huh. and and that that comes back to uh, any listeners that maybe are off the coast of Cape Cod and, and don't like, you know, offshore wind going in there. Your house would be a lot less nice if uh, if it didn't have electricity. Yeah. yeah. And it was underwater. Well, that would be. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> there may be there may be multiple aspects to that that. Um, yeah. But um. Yeah. So, a lot of a lot of access there just by by having a bit of language and hmm. you know the willingness to to interact in a way that was more than than the tourists that that are normally coming through uh neat and for those who are unaware uh solar hot water heater just takes basically takes a big tube heats it up from the sun and then you 
significantly reduces the cost to heat your water because it's already been preheated. Um, kind of like how your steering wheel gets very hot when you've left it in the sun. Uh, or maybe more like a water hose that's left out in the yard in the sun. Yeah. Well, yeah. It's probably better. You have to run it for three minutes to get cold water to drink out of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Probably about right. Spend a lot of time drinking out of hoses, Mac. <laughs> yeah. They yeah. can't see me nodding my head one way or the other. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think he just gave it away. <laughs> All right. Um, I don't know if there's anything else to talk about. Um, it's, it's, it's like Seinfeld. It's a show about nothing. I'm aware it's a show about nothing. I'll also, cut out a lot of silence. But <laughs> oh, uh, pleasant weather we're having today, right? False. No. False. <laughs> oh. Howard, anything to chime in? So once I went to Africa to count monkeys. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. What, what what's that about? So so. For a birthday of mine, I've long since forgotten which one, <laughs> um, I went to the Philadelphia Zoo and heard a woman talk about conservation efforts on Bioko Island, which um, is, is in the, let's see if I can remember, the Bay of Biafra? Maybe. Um, so basically, if you consider the west coast of Africa, where it curves around near, starting with Nigeria and Cameroon, and you turn the corner, I might be forgetting one more country there, there's Equatorial Guinea, and then you go down farther south, and, you know, uh, again, I will be ignorant of, of what's missing, but I feel like Congo is there, yep. and then... Uh, ultimately hit Engel and, and South Africa to, to, to round it out. So so this, this island is, is sort of in that corner of the west coast of Africa on a diagonal line that actually sticks out from, from the continent uh, like a little chain of volcanic islands. And there's, there's three or four of them that, that, that go out in this direction, hmm. out in the Atlantic Ocean. Because it's relatively isolated from the mainland, there's certain biodiversity there that has been protected in a way that it's not been on on mainland Africa. Mm-hmm. And while there's a large city on one side of this island, um, Malabo. So, how about how big were the islands? Like square mileage, if you know. I, I don't. They're relatively small. Okay. Um, no, they're, they're not. They're not huge islands, but. But they're relatively impenetrable because they're volcanic. They're giant cone volcanoes. Like imagine, imagine ah. Hawaii without a lot of money to build roads and, and things like that to yeah. get around them. Oh, so we okay. actually arrived in the capital, which is on the island, um, and then we had some corporate sponsors. So, so I feel like we've we've already accelerated to how I got to Africa without the premise, but that's okay. <laughs> Once we got to the island, we had to get to the other side of the island. And mm-hmm. it's an issue of, well, I guess you could go over, but there's this giant freaking volcano, you know, extinct <laughs> okay. you know, thing in the way. Um, Those generally make it hard to walk there. Yeah. 
generally. What we ended up doing was was getting on a boat from. Um, it's basically a a supply boat that's used to take out. I don't know, like big piping systems or heat exchangers or whatever to offshore oil rigs. But they had this wow. boat that was available, so we are piling our backpacks and you know the uh, the satellite radio and, and stuff like that, and and getting on this boat, we go around the island until we get onto these like zodiacs. So think now, James Bond, right? These are the kind of boats that you see in James Bond <laughs> oh, yes. to get off the big boat oh, to get my. to shore. We're we're invading like like seals or something like that, you know, trying to keep our stuff from getting soaked. <laughs> You know, getting it on on shore, and we finally get there, and now we're we're you know six hours from the big city by boat. Jeez, but wow. we may as well like you look out into the Atlantic Ocean, and you're like, okay, the coast of uh, Uruguay is is four thousand miles in that direction. There's nothing between here and there. There wow. are no lights. There's no no nothing. Um, that's insane. But that's where. The, the terrifying the animals are well it depends on how you think of it if yeah. you think about the potential for getting injured and like how you would get back to civilization you um, kind of wouldn't right yeah. well you yeah. know it depends but um so yeah we established base camp and there's this expedition that runs yearly um at the time it was was through drexel university i think they still still run it but there's been in the past decade significant development that comes from oil money and investment from uh, uh, okay. western and chinese powers um due to the the particular isolation of the far side of the island you can go there and you can see these animals some of which are you know in short supply let's say on the mainland mm -hmm. but the idea was there are still hunters that they get back there they still poach animals they're taking oh, okay. monkeys wow. uh dikers which are like little tiny you could almost call them deer or something like that um so just pangolins which are like these these rainforest armadillos or the, you know they catch whatever they can bring them back to the market and and they're sold as bush meat so wow Wow. This was something what's, that National Geographic picked up. What's bush meat? Never heard that term. It's it's meat that you you oh, grab from the jungle, or, okay. or whatever. Very so popular. It's not roadkill. You know, you've gone out there and, and you've you've hunted for it, but you know it's considered as coming from the bush, and it's usually something that is wild as opposed to being farmed. Okay. I mean, it's been on the gamey side, I would imagine. I mean, you can see the bellies of these animals are, are you know, inflating with, with stuff as it's, as flesh really? rots. And, and, and no, it's, it's, it's a very different experience. Um, but yeah, so we went to do a census and count the animals. And, you know, so, you know, I have some tangential interest in, in primates, but also, um, you know, view the, let's say, the way populations of animals or people or whatever move around is, is very much similar to the kind of, like, chemistry that I work on. You have a chemical reaction, maybe that's, that's the local growth or decay of, of, of a population due to 
hunting, predation, birth rate, whatever. But then you also have the fact that these are, they're not like trees that are stuck in one place. Right. You know, yeah. they can move around. So there's, there's this convection or diffusion of, of, huh. of animals as well. And so it was interesting to see, you know, rather than the particular sampling techniques that, that, that I used to, to diagnose a chemically reacting flow, how do you measure animals that, you know, I mean, they're the intelligent movement. agents in a way that maybe little particles of gas are not. But I was curious when you first mentioned, I was curious because how do you count them? They don't just stay there for you to go one, two, three, four, five. You that's know, that's ooh, what I was going to ask. There's what, what does a monkey census entail? Like getting you know numbers, age, sex, name, occupation, address. So you sort you of thing. walk a path and and the the animals are typically dimorphic the, the male is often larger and maybe more brightly colored or something like that something you would mm-hmm. expect from watching nature shows on TV yeah um, and they move in troops and so you can count you know maybe this is a, a you know there's sort of one alpha male and then certain females and, and juveniles or, or whatever but you you walk a certain route and like that is to me is a, is a very different way of sampling than what you would do in maybe something uh, with a great deal of mathematical rigor. You can take a lot of the, the chemical reaction and gas uh, gas phase chemistry that I do and, and go back to nearly first principles and, and develop everything up. And so your ability to measure something in this chemically reacting flow should be superb. But in the real sort of in the jungle, yeah, you're, you're walking you around. Can't, you can't see every last space so because you, you can only access so many. Often these are the same trails that the hunters are using. So they try uh, and Often there's a away. snake right there and you can't step on it or it's going to bite you. And then you're six hours from you know, the nearest yeah. hospital. And, and um, so, so that, that so mixes things fun. up a little bit. Did you kind of do it based on... You know, we saw this many in this area, and assume right, and and so standard. so you can you can kind of, you know, I mean, you have to extrapolate, you have to fill yeah. in the gaps or whatever. Like okay. you're saying, it's, it's not like a, a set mathematical thing that you would measure in a lab. It's it's more just, I guess, in this case, kind of measuring the density of how right. many but groups you're seeing, and then guesstimating, extrapolating. What what you can understand is, you know. If there are fewer of them or more of them, if you take the same circuit, yeah. you know, year after year, and you know, the reality is there there are fewer and fewer, um, as perhaps you might expect. Um, but you know, you move through. You know, we started off on the coast and hiked up into a volcanic crater, um, and the the jungle changes. The kinds of animals and plants you see change. Um, the like crazy ants that will attack anything change. I mean, this oh, is like cool. You get to see those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. You know, it's like a, a ten lane highway of of five lanes going in this direction to eat yeah. whatever it is that they're they're going after, and five returning, and you don't want to step on them because they'll kill you. Have a thousand of them. You know, I remember a guy stepping in in ants, and they. They were so ready to attack. They they bit his pants. So he was able. He didn't get bit at all. 
He got out of his pants. He took them off. You know, the ants latched on. They did not let go. And you had to crack their bodies off. There was an audible cracking noise. Oh, how big are these ants? These were these were big. Um, oh. Like fingernail big or like thumb big? Yeah, like finger... Um, maybe bigger than fingernail big. Good. Not, like not thumb big. That's that is, that is a massive the knuckle of your thumb. Yeah, probably knuckle. probably thumb... The first first joint of your thumb big or something like that. Ooh. Yeah, how big were the pincers on it? I bet they're oh, pretty large. Um, Pinchy. But yeah, I mean, you see... Oh, um, first of all, I'd like to say thank you for that image. I don't think I'm ever leaving the house again. Yeah. You know, I, didn't, I didn't need there's sleep a, for the rest a, of my life. A wonderful short story I, I remember reading in high school called Lionagen versus the Ants. Bro. And that is when when you realize... Um, it's a it's a useful lesson for, for engineers in, in particular... Um, Nature will ultimately always win. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, no matter how badly the humans ever destroy the Earth, if we all kill each other with nuclear warfare, give it a few thousand years, the Earth won't remember us. Yeah, that's true. Well, you know, we need only look to uh, three major hurricanes this year just affecting the U.S., never mind all other natural disasters everywhere else. Um, nature always wins. Think about a concrete road, how hard and permanent that seems. Give it a year. Snow, ice, plants, it's well, got cracks in it. Well, I mean, on, on the contrary, we live in New Jersey. I don't think any kind of pavement is, is, is hardy or long-lasting at all. <laughs> New Jersey? No. <laughs> Connecticut either. I mean, we can go from 98 one day... To in a few weeks, oh, stuff is freezing. Well, I mean, admittedly, yesterday it was 72. Yeah, and today it's in the 40s. That said, yeah. you know, that's here. I, I heard recently that there's been a, another chamber possibly discovered inside the Grand Pyramid. Or yeah, the really? Grand Pyramid. Yeah. Oh, they wow. were using muon detectors, which are things I don't know a whole lot about, but... Oh, um, I don't think any of us do. I was, I was reading a bit about it. Particles can pass through rock. That's that's yeah. what I need to know about it to, to make sense of it all. And yeah, there's like... I mean... There's like another large Significant, you know, fraction of a football field or something like that. Wow. Um, so above so. the already labeled Grand Chamber or, you know, again... Facts are, are loose loose here, but you know. So uh, we, we I was, like I was reading I was reading up a bit on that. Uh, essentially, how it works is that these muons interact with the with you know, you really? the, the mass of stone. Yes, yes. Oh, okay. And by placing detectors in you know all around all around the pyramid and noticing the slight variations in how these muons are hitting these detectors, they were able to sort of create a theoretical map of where this chamber would be. They don't know Ooh. for sure They're, because it's it's not a really concrete thing, you know, using to... Ah, <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> but they know there is a chamber. They don't know what orientation it's in, but they know roughly where it is. They kind of get an idea of where the middle of it is. This yeah. is like the Raiders of the Lost... Like, oh, yeah. I mean, it could just be like a light shaft or... or Something yeah. to well, reduce the amount of rock that slaves had to quarry out of, 
you know, some Never. place far away or, or something well, like that. Right? See, like this work, this work has been highly hindered by some guy wearing a, a hat, yelling it belongs in a museum and constantly destroying their equipment. Um, I don't know what it is. He's still at large. I'm trying to find him. I mean, I think we're hitting about the forty-minute mark, so I think we can we can wrap it up here. Uh, once again, my name is Joshua Weinberg. I'm Zachary Miller. We, uh, they, keep, they keep telling me I'm Mike Bertinsky. Yep, and thank you again to Professor Mac Haas. It was a pleasure uh, talking to you. Yeah, thanks, guys. And this was Down the Wormhole. Thank you, everybody. Everybody for listening in. <laughs>